It's the North Shore Vineyard Church Audio Podcast, and I'm Crispin Schroeder, pastor, North Shore Vineyard. Happy New Year. We haven't put up a podcast in the last two weeks because we've kind of had some special services. Last weekend, in particular, we showed a documentary of our first two years of being a church as we celebrated our two-year anniversary last weekend. So... There was no podcast for that, but if you want to check out the video, there is a link to it on the front page of our website at northshorevineyard.org. Today we're going to be taking a break from the Gospel of John to have kind of a standalone message where we're looking at three temptations that Jesus faced in the wilderness. I think this will be really good to help us set our bearings for the new year, that we could live a distinctively different kingdom kind of lifestyle as we go forward. So let's head over to the top, North Shore Vineyard Church in downtown Covington. Thanks for listening. Well, we've been in a series on the book of John and we're going to take a break from it today, uh, but we're not going to take a break from Jesus, okay? Um, yay? Okay. You go to a church that doesn't take a break from Jesus. That's good. Um, that's our resolution. We're going to do more messages on Jesus this year. <laughs> uh, today we're going to be looking in the Gospel of Matthew. And, and just a little, this is going to be kind of a standalone message, but I, I, I mentioned perhaps a few weeks ago that I every December I go on a study prayer planning retreat for the coming year to just kind of hear God and study and actually spent a few days reading and, and praying and stuff. And, and I really believe that one of the themes that God wants us to, to grapple with as a church this year is what does it mean to be people living in the kingdom of God? What's it mean to be kingdom people? Now, you're going to bump into that term, the kingdom of God, all over the New Testament. But unfortunately, it can seem like a very abstract term to a lot of people because what the heck does... I mean, we don't have any reference... I mean, hello, none of us have lived in a monarchy before. It's so even the word king is a little weird to us. But it's a, it's a term that it happens all throughout the New Testament. Now, a lot of people want to push the kingdom of God to, to eternity, saying that it's just, it's just heaven. But that's not the sense we get with Jesus. Jesus didn't talk about the kingdom of heaven as being some other place that you go when you die. He actually talked about it. He said the kingdom of God is near you. And he would demonstrate what the kingdom looked like. And it looked like people getting healed getting set free, people who were on the outside of religion getting welcomed in at his table. So uh, I want us to grapple with what does it mean if Jesus is the king of our lives? And what's it mean if he's the king of this church? How do we live in this world as if Jesus is our highest authority and not the president of the United States or uh, whatever governing body in our world? How do we live as people of that kingdom? And so to answer, the, you know, to, to begin grappling with that question, I think it's 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 a good thing to look at the area of temptation, uh, kind of the, the temptations that we'll face. I love what the, there's a, the writer of Hebrews writes this about Jesus. He says that we have a high priest that can sympathize us, with us in our weaknesses. Why? Because he's been tempted every way that you and I will be tempted. Isn't that good news? To know that, that Jesus knows what we're going through, not just as God, but he's faced it as a human being. I tell you, that, that, that really gets me going there. So what 
temptations did Jesus face? I want us to look at that today. And this will be a passage out of the book of Matthew. So, oh, by the way, if anybody wants some Bibles, we've got Bibles around here. Does anybody want a Bible to read along with? Okay. Um, <laughs> and, and we have found a few Bibles that have are, are kind of screwed up. They, they were misprints, and so they've... So if you got one of those, just let us know, and we'll... Uh, <laughs> That's why they were so cheap on Amazon. Uh, now, just to set this up, we've, we've talked a little bit about Jesus, his baptism in the, in the Gospel of John. But this event that we're looking at today in Matthew, this happens right after Jesus is baptized. He's, he, he goes out into the wilderness for a time of testing. So we'll pick it up in Matthew 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, People do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will give his angels He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. But Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended to him. How many of y'all made New Year's resolutions? How many of those involve food? I'm in that camp. I've been trying to get back on my uh, low-carb diet this week, and and at the Saints game last night, I was was facing temptations all around me, right? And it's not the temptations that I'm facing. It's not that I need uh, a slice of pizza or that great bread with cheese on it or the chips. It's not that I need that stuff. I want it, right? So I think typically we think of temptation many times coming along the lines of, of what we want, right? Uh, we can think of a lot of the, the big sins have to do with things we want. Greed, lust, jealousy, covetousness, right? These are associated with things that I want. I want that. But we see the first temptation that is offered to Jesus by the devil is not a long wants. It's a long needs. The devil is tempting him with something he needs. He's been without food for 40 days and 40 nights. So this isn't that kind of hunger that you get when you miss a meal or even two meals. This is, this is like the point of, of, you know, being in trouble physically. You know, if you go that long without food, you're going to get in trouble, probably particularly if you're out in the desert wilderness. Not good. Jesus is tempted to make bread out of stones by the devil. But how does he answer him? He says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, what we'll find in these temptations, Jesus answers the devil three times with scriptures. Now, I, I've heard a lot of 
preachers and pastors over the years say, you know, when the devil comes out, the way to fight him off is by using the word of God, and this is an example of this. But, and, and, and while that can be true, I think it's interesting to see what passages Jesus is coming back with because Jesus is using two chapters out of the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Deuteronomy chapter 8. And these are both scriptures that tie into the Exodus narrative, the the story of the children of Israel going from slavery in Egypt to freedom in the promised land. No doubt there are parallels between what's going on here and the 40 years that the children of Israel spent in the desert. A lot of times we found in the book of John, uh, Jesus is called the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, like the Passover Lamb. Jesus referred to himself a few weeks ago when we looked at it as the temple, being greater than the temple. And right here we see Jesus even uh, symbolically recasting himself in the Exodus story. The children of Israel went into the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days. The children of Israel were tempted to bow their knee to the temptations of the enemy. Jesus faces those same. But Jesus faces them as the true Israelite, the one who won't compromise, the one who will stand up and face those temptations. So it's interesting to see how Jesus answers this temptation. He answers with a... a, a, a verse out of Deuteronomy. Now, the context of the Deuteronomy verse, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 8, Deuteronomy is all the way back in the Old Testament here. And in the 8th chapter, this is God speaking to the children of Israel. He says, be careful, in the first verse, be careful to follow every command I am giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised an oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that people don't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of your Lord. Your clothes did not wear out. Your feet did not swell during those 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord God disciplines you. I think what was going on out here in the wilderness is Jesus was meditating on these scriptures. I think this was fresh in his mind. He was, he was thinking about the Exodus story. Now, I, I mean, I can't prove this, but I think that's what's, why his answers are quick, so quickly come up from Deuteronomy. And, and Jesus' reply to the enemy right here was, when he says, why don't you make these stones into bread? He says, you shall not live by bread alone. Now, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, these verses, God is speaking to Israel, and he says, look, part of the reason that I let you out through the wilderness for all those years, 40 years of being in the wilderness, it's not that it took that long to get from Egypt to Israel. That would have taken a couple of months, maybe, with that many people. But it would certainly not have taken years or 40 years. But God says, the reason that I led the children of Israel out through the wilderness was to humble you, to test you, to cause you to get hungry, to teach you that you don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That that your relationship with God is much more important than even the bread you eat. Now, I've mentioned this on a few occasions, but understand the children of Israel, they formed their whole ethnic identity as a people under 400 years of slavery. They became an ethnic group under slavery. That's all they knew. Your mentality as a slave was keep your head down, keep making bricks for Pharaoh, 
don't rock the boat, and Egypt will feed you. And God takes them out in the wilderness, and he provides this way to feed them called manna. It was a continental breakfast that would appear out on the lawn every day. And they would go out there, and they would gather this stuff up. But you understand the, the interesting thing about manna is you couldn't make groceries for the week. You couldn't just go load up and say, oh, man, look at all this manna. Let's go stock it up so we don't have to get groceries for the week. No, it would turn, it would, it would spoil by the next day, have maggots in it. You could only get enough manna for today. We don't like that, do we? We don't like the having to come to God daily. We kind of like, I like to do one retreat a year, take care of that spiritual stuff, and, and, uh, and then go about my business. I'd like to have everything in my life all mapped out, my retirement, all these things. But God is saying here, I fed you with manna, this miraculous thing, every day that you had to come to me for, so you would know that there's something much bigger than even your personal needs. Your, your personal needs will actually be fulfilled in me. Don't put them first, though. But what do we see with the children of Israel? Even though God provides... I mean, think about it. Think of how crazy that it is. 40 years of getting fed with manna every day. There is a miracle every day. Their clothes don't wear out. Their shoes don't wear out. 40 years. I can't get a pair of shoes to last a year, you know? They have miracles every single day, but what do they do? They murmur and they complain. Oh, I missed the garlic back in Egypt. Man, that was so good. I miss those things. Remember how good slavery was. They murmured. They complained. They bowed their knee to it, but Jesus does not. You know, one, one author, Henry Nowen, he refers to this temptation, and I'm borrowing heavily from him today because he has some really good stuff on it, and I'm not going to reinvent it. But he refers to this as the temptation to be relevant. What could be more relevant than, than taking care of our needs, right? We, we think that's a good thing, like feeding the hungry, even especially when it's ourselves, right? This is what Henry Nowen writes. He says, in a variety of ways, we are made to believe that we are what we produce. This leads to a preoccupation with products, visible results, and tangible goods and progress. The temptation to be relevant is difficult to shake since it's usually not considered a temptation, but a call. Jesus did not deny the importance of bread, but rather relativized it in comparison with the nurturing power of the word of God. Bread is given to us by God so that we will entrust ourselves completely to God's word. We are not the bread we offer, but people who are fed by the word of God and thereby find true selfhood. The radical challenge is to let God and the divine word shape and reshape us as human beings, to feast each day on this word and thus grow into free and fearless people. You know, I showed a video here last weekend. If you weren't here, go check it out. It's, I, I put a link to it on our front page, but it was a little documentary of our first two years as a church. But one thing you see in this video is we fed a lot of hungry people in the two years we've been here. I mean, we've collected tons of food, and I, I believe in that. I think that's good. But do you realize if, if we focus on that without focusing on God, we just become another benevolent nonprofit organization? As much as it is important to take care of hungry people, our central calling is to be the people of God who come to God daily with our lives, that we come to Him out of that, we'll find even our needs met. 
What did Jesus say two chapters later in Matthew? He says, don't worry about your house, where you're going to live or your clothes, what you're going to wear, what you're going to eat at nighttime. Your father in heaven knows that you need all these things. Everybody wants those things. He says, but rather seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be provided for you. You know, when we started this church Two years ago, well, a little over two years ago, we got sent out from the Kinder Vineyard. They took up a, a generous collection for us to send us out, and they gave us enough money to provide for the church, my salary included, pay all our rent for five months. So we had five months to get this thing going. Now, at that time, my house had been on the market for nearly a year, and we hadn't sold it. And here we were about to launch the thing. We we're just in trouble, but we kept coming back to this scripture of seek first the kingdom of God because that's what Jesus, what, what we got at the beginning of this whole church planning process. We said, that's, that's our scripture as a family. And so I thought, well, maybe I'm going to be reverse commuting. Maybe I'm just going to be commuting to church <laughs> from the South Shore because we just could not get rid of our place. And we saw a financial miracle in our own home where we were able to actually come across the lake that month. I mean, just uh, incredible blessing. The church, on the other hand, we made it to the fifth month of this church, and we got to the lowest spot in our checking account that we had hit. And we got down to just a couple thousand dollars here. But you know, that month was the first month that we met our budget. And from then on, we haven't turned back. Now, I am around church planners all the time. To hit your budget in five months with a brand new church that started with 10 people, that's that's a miracle. (laughs) That doesn't happen much. But I am convinced that it is our conviction to seek first the kingdom of God. We're not worrying about that. We haven't made that, finding the building or finding all these things, the issue. We've made it seeking first the kingdom of God. And when you seek first the kingdom of God, God will take care of your needs. On the other hand, if you put your needs first, they become an idol themselves. Your house that was just meant to to provide you with shelter becomes an idol. It becomes a baggage. Your car, your clothes, you become living for that stuff and you start getting confused thinking that that stuff is your life. And when you go down that path, it's miserable because it will never, ever satisfy you. Man does not live by bread alone. The temptation to be relevant. I think in this coming year, every one of us faces this temptation. Will we get caught up in in seeking after our needs, trying to fulfill our needs, or will we put God first and trust Him that He will take care of them? And that's going to look different for every person in here. The second temptation, the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, this is an interesting scripture because the devil actually comes this time quoting scripture. That's kind of scary. You know, a lot of times we think of the devil coming up looking like stuff we see on movies, you know, coming up with horns and and red, you know. (laughs) 
But the devil comes to Jesus quoting scriptures. He will give his angels charge over you lest you doubt, dash your foot. Why don't you just jump off the pinnacle of this temple and, and just prove you're the son of God? You know, do some tricks. Be spectacular. We love the spectacular, don't we? We love it. And it's, it's no different for church. I, I read an article two years ago. I actually wrote about this on my blog one time. Uh, Andy Stanley, who's a good pastor down in Georgia, uh, he, their church has been doing a lot, what a lot of churches have been doing over the last 10 years. They, they ran out of space in their, their auditorium, probably because they got 20,000 people or something. But they've started doing these multi-site campuses. So they've, they launched a campus across town, and, and, and you show up at church, and everything's the same. You have a live worship band and coffee and announcements and childcare and stuff. But when it comes to the message, you just watch the video from the main thing. And so a lot of churches are doing this. Well, uh, this this company that designed all the technology for his church they came up with a new thing and i actually saw the article it saw a picture of this is holographic preachers so this is like the next step and <laughs> yeah like like from star wars help me obi-wan kenobi <laughs> you're my only help and and they showed a guy standing next to a holographic preacher and it was it was hard to tell the difference between real person or the holograph and i'm thinking as, as much as I might disagree with that theologically, I'd probably show up for that service because who wouldn't want to see a holograph, right? <laughs> so much of church these days, we've, and I, I, I love technology. I love what things can do to help us. But so much of this, if we're not careful, it can feed this need to be spectacular, to, to just do this amazing production all the time and, and we, we leave God behind. And it's not just on the end of technology. I, I found for several years, uh, you know, really most of my first decade as a Christian, I, I was kind of around, you know, kind of charismatic, non-denominational churches. But I remember back in the mid-90s, uh, there was a lot of places where revivals were breaking out and I was like I'd load up in the car with friends and we'd drive hours to go to this place and 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 I'm not saying God wasn't moving I think God was moving but then we'd get back and we'd find the next thing the next big worship thing or the next uh meeting over here or there and and after a while though it was like I began living for this spiritual high the spectacular. I loved it when the music was kicking, when it was a revival, when people were doing all these things. I, I even remember this one church I was going to, they had a, a, a weekly service where they would invite guest speakers in. And many of these people were prophetic. I mean, they, would, they could read your mail, you know, and a lot of people started coming up to church because of that. You know, they're like, man, I want to get my fortune for the... <laughs> I, I say that because regretfully... I think it creates the same tendency with people as, say, going down to Jackson Square and visiting a palm reader. It, it, it's, it's the same desire. Figure things out for me. Map it out. And I'm not saying, I think God does, I've, I've had people give words to me. I'm just saying it caused a spiritual consumerism within me that was based on the spectacular and so my walk with God, whenever things weren't going spectacular, I kind of felt like, oh, man, God must not love me very much. I must be doing something wrong because it sure didn't feel like that conference or that revival or that special guest speaker. This kind of seems like pretty normal, mundane life. 
Well, let me let you in on a clue. The spiritual life, much of it is pretty normal and mundane. I mean, look at Jesus for a second. Do you realize, estimates are that Jesus lived 30 years before he did his ministry that included the miracles and the preaching and the teaching like that. And his ministry was three years. So I'm not a mathematician, but that's 10% of his life, right? Okay. 10% of the life of Jesus here on earth was spectacular. (laughs) 90% of his life was growing up in a regular family in a small town in Galilee, probably being the apprentice son of a carpenter. It was normal, everyday existence. The spiritual life, whenever we begin seeking the spectacular all the time, just like seeking to get our needs met is the main thing, it it makes us less. We see the children of Israel, they fell into this temptation many times too, even though there were spectacular things going on all the time. Actually, I think that's the paradox when you realize that that Christianity isn't going to be spectacular all the time. Sometimes you see the spectacular in such mundane things. I've seen in the last few weeks, I've just been blown away on what God is doing in just some very normal things in my life. I'm like, these are incredible instances of God doing things, but I can't really share a lot of them with anybody. It's just, I'm getting to see this. But it doesn't look like bells and whistles and lights and holograms and all that stuff. Now, I believe in the spectacular. I believe people get healed. I believe people get, I've seen spectacular things happen, but we can't seek that. The same goes for for marriage. You know, when when Dean and I first got married a little over 14 years ago, um, I've shared this on many occasions, it was was hard. It was like, I mean, within about two months, I thought there is just no chance. I mean, we're not going to make it. We're a mess. And part of the problem was I was a campus pastor too so i was i was trying to fake it to everybody else that i had it all together so it took a lot of effort to act like i had it all together while it was just completely falling apart and i called this friend of mine up one night a pastor from uh, jackson mississippi dan hall uh and i had a conversation with him one night that that changed my life i said dan man i don't know what to do like my marriage is we're we're we've made it two months and and i don't think we're going to make it much longer and he told me, he said, you know, where this thing is going, it's a, it's a fireside chat. I'm like, what? <laughs> and he explained to me, he said, when you're dating and when you get engaged, you kind of think of marriage being this, this romantic, passionate thing all the time. And, and that's good. But he said, a lot of people think that, that your marriage is going to stay there forever. And really where God is going isn't to minimize that, but God's going to do something deeper with you and your wife if you'll submit to it. And it will look like a couple sitting by the fire years down the road. Now, that's not what you want to hear when you first get married, but it was a heck of a lot better than the hell I was living in. So I would, I would take a fireside chat. <laughs> but I can honestly tell you that after 14 years of being married, I love Dina. I care for her more than I ever have. There's a love that has gone through trials and testing and tribulation, good times, bad times, and there's something of substance there. We're 
not insecure in our relationship like we once were because love has has really worked its work within our hearts. Now, we still got a lot. I mean, I'm not saying we've arrived, but we're certainly further than where we're at. But most of the marriage hasn't looked spectacular. (laughs) There are spectacular days. There's still amazing times. And occasionally I do a few romantic things. Occasionally. Once in a while. (laughs) I didn't hear an amen. No. (laughs) But most of marriage is not spectacular. It's everyday, ordinary life. See, a lot of people get... Think think even with marriage. I see people that are 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years old who are stuck in a perpetual adolescence looking for the, the next woman or the next man that will cause those feelings. And as soon as those feelings begin to die just a little bit or as soon as they face any resistance, then they bail out of there because it doesn't feel so good. They want the spectacular. And that's the world we live in. I mean, look at reality TV. That's all reality TV is one person hooking up with the next, whether it's the Bachelors or the Kardashians or whoever. That's the script. The need to be spectacular. The truth is, God has something much deeper. You might even consider this in your own vocation. Some of you think that, man, I don't have a very spectacular job or life. You know, I do a job that no one sees. Maybe you're a stay-at-home mom, and you think nobody sees the hard work that I do. I'm changing diapers all day. I'm putting up with kids, and it feels like I've put my whole career on hold when there's other friends of mine, and I see them on Facebook who just seem like they're, they've got it all together. They're not having to worry with kids. Did I make the wrong decision? You didn't. The path to spirituality isn't spectacular. Even in your vocation, a lot of times, it's just plugging away at it day after day. But, but that's not a bad time. Because, see, when we, when we get rid of that, that illusion that it has to be spectacular, then we're open for truly spectacular things to happen in the mundane things of life that we would have missed otherwise if we were seeking something else. Again, Henry Nouwen says this. He says, Who am I when nobody pays attention? says thanks or recognizes my work. The more insecure, doubtful, and lonely we are, the greater our need for popularity and praise. And sadly, this hunger is never satisfied. The hunger for human acceptance is a bottomless barrel. It can never be filled. Indeed, the search for spectacular glitter is an expression of doubt in God's complete and unconditional acceptance of us. It is indeed putting God to the test. It's saying... I am not sure that you really care, that you really love me, that you really consider me worthwhile. I will give you a chance to show it by soothing my inner fears with human praise and by alleviating my sense of worthlessness by human applause. But we are not the votes we receive. Rather, we are who God has made us in love, children of the light, children of God. Only a life of ongoing intimate communion with God can reveal to us our true selfhood. Only such a life can set us free to act according to the truth and not according to our need for the spectacular. The final temptation that Jesus faces is the temptation to be powerful. Again, the devil took took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will just bow down and worship me. 
And Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and the angels attended to him. Power is the name of the game in our culture, isn't it? Whether political, financial, talent, intellectual ability, power is what we look for so often. But the mystery of the Christian life is that our ministry doesn't come from our power, but through our powerlessness. The mystery of the Christian life is that our ministry doesn't come from our power, but our powerlessness. It took me years to to figure that out a little bit. When I first became a Christian, I thought, oh, well, you've got to be talented and amazing and spectacular, and, and you've got to have all these things together. You've got, to, you've got to be strong before you can do things. Now I'm realizing if I've got anything to offer anybody, it comes from my weaknesses. It comes from my brokenness. It doesn't come from all my great abilities. I, a lot of times those things actually get in the way. <laughs> it comes from our powerlessness. How does Jesus answer the devil? He answers him with this, a passage from Deuteronomy 6. He says, and and to put the passage in context, it says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give you a land with large flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then, when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Worship the Lord, your God, and serve Him only. What is God saying to the children of Israel? He said, after, when they're about to enter the promised land, He said, okay, here's what's going to happen. When you get into the promised land, you're going to find houses you didn't build, vineyards you didn't plant. You're going to get to enter into things that you didn't have to lift a finger to do. Don't forget who got you here. Isn't that the biggest temptation? You get that raise on the job and it's like, oh, look at all my hard efforts. I'm pretty good. You get things that come through from you. And and I find, honestly, that's the place where it's easier to forget God than anything. I mean, when my marriage was coming apart, I could remember God pretty quick. My prayers got whittled down to, please, God, help. (laughs) That was it. But when things go good, when you got the house, the car, the, the raise on the job, when, when everything is going for you, we, we, we tend to forget that it was God who got us there. And what's the antidote that Jesus says? Worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. And these are words we need to understand. Why do we worship here every weekend? I mean, is it just that we like to play inspirational Christian songs? No. When we're singing this morning, Jesus, be the center, that is a prayer. Because when Jesus isn't the center of my life, I start grasping for power the way the world does. See, every one of you in here, uh, you have choices on your jobs, particularly. You got the choice to grab for power the way the world does. But that's that's not a good road to go down. See, I I think you can look all throughout the Old Testament and you find that the people who could actually be trusted with some form of authority and power, 
They were the ones who had worship at the center of their life. You can see that with Joseph in the Old Testament. You can see it with Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. But, but I think one of the greatest examples is David. King David was known as the, the greatest king of Israel. He was actually anointed king more than probably 10 years before he became king. While there was already a king on the throne, a guy named Saul. David was just a teenager. And the prophet Samuel comes to him, picks him out from all his brothers and says, you're going to be the the next king, and he anoints him. But it's over 10 years that David has to go with this promise from God before he ever sees it fulfilled. And those were the hardest 10 years of David's life. He was hunted. He was a fugitive. He was betrayed. He was on the run for his life. But he never stopped worshiping God. You can look in the book of Psalms. There's actually songs that David wrote when everything in his life was falling apart. David even has two occasions in his life to kill Saul. There's one particular occasion where they find Saul sleeping in a cave one night, surrounded by men, and David and his men sneak in there. And David's men are saying, kill him. He deserves it. He's been hunting you. He's been slandering you. He wants to kill you. Nobody would. You, you're, you're already the, the one who God's anointed to be king. And what does David say? I'm not going to touch the one that God's anointed to be the king. I'm not going to touch him. If God wants me to be king, God can make me king. He doesn't need my help. David didn't grasp for the power of the world to achieve God's purposes even though everybody was telling him to, and nobody would have even thought it was a bad thing. We face that in our own lives. To grab for the power of the world, to operate according to the corruption of the businesses around you, your competition, the way the other people are doing it in Louisiana. You have that choice. And for many of you, I'm sure that's a reality every day. Will you grab for power? Will you trust that if God's put you here, God can provide for you? See, David, after 10 years of being on the run from his life, after, after two times where he could have killed Saul and he doesn't, finally God establishes him as a king. And he could actually deal with being a king and not lord it over people. He, he, power hadn't taken a hold of his heart, so he was free to rule on God's behalf. It's interesting when you look at the end of David's life, one of his own children, his son Absalom, starts a coup. And Absalom looked like a king. Everybody starts saying, oh, man, Absalom, this, is the, this guy needs to take the... I mean, David, he's so old. You know, let's, let's get rid of him. Absalom, man, this guy's great looking. And he, look, he looks kingly, presidential. And so they start... Absalom's people start running David out of town. And there's a scene that, where David is, is on the run from his life, for his life, fleeing with some of his counselors and some of his, his guards... And some of these followers of Absalom, they start hurling insults at him, calling David a dog and saying all this stuff. And David's men are like, dude, you want us to take care of this dude? You want us to kill him? And David says, no. This blows me away. David says, no, maybe my time as king is up. Maybe God has seen fit to take me out of here. And maybe this guy is not really insulting me. Maybe he's speaking on God's behalf. What? (laughs) What? He's about to lose the kingdom and still he's ruling with open heart. Still, if God has put me here, God will keep me here. 
And if God's done with me, then I don't want to stay here. Do you realize the only way you get there is worship? Is it any coincidence that David wrote 90% of the book of Psalms? He wrote songs crying out to God all the time. And they're not songs we can even sing in church. Some of them had really bad lyrics. (laughs) Because he was very honest with God. But the thing is, he kept God at the center. And so when God puts him as king, God could trust him as king. Can God trust you? Or are you grasping for power? Are you grasping for power or are you worshiping God? These are the temptations that we face today. We face them this year. And I just think as we look into this coming year, we would do good to, to grapple with where am I tempted to bow my knee, my knee to the temptation to be relevant, to be spectacular, but to be powerful. Let's keep God at the center. Today, I just want to invite you up to, we're going to take communion as we close today. So as I just begin singing this uh, song we did in worship, why don't you just come up and grab the elements, bring them back to your seat, and we will all take them together. Love. 